Amen. Good morning, church. Go ahead and take your seats. It is great to be with you this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Jordan. I am a part of the staff team here. Uh, last week, I was down at a church in Newmarket and missed the first week of live worship. And let me just tell you, I was so fired up for service in this service. It's awesome to be able to worship with a live band up here again, isn't it? Well, it's great to be with you, and, and thank you. There we go. Absolutely. And it's also, be great, it's also great to be able to open up God's Word together. And so if you've got a copy of the Bible with you, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2, which is where we will be uh, this morning. And uh, my wife Emily and I are the parents to uh, two now, two beautiful girls. That's right, I am a proud girl dad. Uh, Annie, who is two, and Elle, who is uh, six weeks old today, actually. We welcomed her just a few weeks ago. And uh, needless to say, when Annie, our oldest, started walking, that was a big deal. That was a big deal in our house, and we were, we were overjoyed, of course, to see her take those first steps. Overjoyed uh, quickly gave way to terror, of course, because nothing like a toddler to help you realize just how dangerous your house is, right? Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I am sent a video or I see a video online or somebody shows me a video of somebody who was told they could never walk again, take their first steps after years and years of therapy, tears well up inside me every single time flow down my face. And then, of course, for the elderly at the time in their lives when they are told they can no longer walk, it grips them and all who are with them and around them, their families, it grips them with sadness, doesn't it? See, walking is a big deal in our lives. And it's no wonder that it's used as a metaphor for the Christian life. And there are times in our lives as we walk with Jesus that it's easy, isn't it? Where it's like Jesus is right there beside you and, and you're walking in times of great growth and blessing and joy. And then, of course, there are times when walking with Jesus is hard. When it feels almost impossible to be able to take another step as we face the current of trials, of temptations, of difficulties. And then, of course, there's times when, whether willfully or not, we're unable to walk in the ways that Jesus has called us to. Or perhaps we're walking in the opposite direction. See, walking is a big deal in our lives. And this morning, as we turn to a passage of wonderfully beautiful gospel truth, we will ask ourselves the question, where is the evidence that I am walking with Christ? So let me read the passage this morning. I hope you're there already. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As we put ourselves and our walk with Jesus under the microscope this morning. Follow along with me as I read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. These are God's words to us this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where's the evidence that I'm walking with Christ? That's the big question before us this morning. And as we consider that, as we look at our own lives to consider whether we are walking with Jesus Christ and what the status of our relationship is with him, we'll ask ourselves three additional questions here this morning. I hope you'll ask these of yourself. See this first. Am I aware of how lost I was? For those of us who are professing believers, I get the sense that we can all, at least in some ways, understand how lost we were before we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But I would contend this morning that we don't appreciate the extent of how lost we were. Let's allow God's word to remind us this morning. Look back down at verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead, Paul says. Dead is how he describes the pre-Christ state of his readers. Not physical, literal death, mind you, but spiritual death with the condemnation of second eternal death weighing over us. In Luke chapter 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, we see the example, another example of this. You know the story, right? The son asks for the inheritance from his father early, goes off, lives on his own in sinfulness, squanders it, and then comes crawling back to his father. His dad responds in Luke 15, 24 by saying, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, death as Paul and the father of the prodigal son are talking about here is this idea of being separated of being disconnected, and in our case, because of our sinfulness, and in our sinfulness, we are spiritually separated from God. And make no mistake, this is a hopelessly desperate state of moving every single day closer and closer to irreversible separation from God in hell unless something changes. We understand that the act of sinning against God is a violating of his commandments. It is us missing the mark that God has set. And sin, of course, first entered the world through Adam and Eve, the first people created. And it has been from them imparted to all who comes after them, which causes us to be cast out of fellowship with God in the same way that Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. See, we alienated ourselves from God in our sin. We cut the cord. We jumped ship. We wandered off and got lost instead of following, living, or as Paul says here, walking in his ways free of sinfulness. We were, as verse 2 says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We, dead in our sin, 
gave ourselves willingly to three things, Paul details here. First, the course of this world. We gave ourselves up to the influence of the course of this world, the evil of the present age. I feel as if I don't need to go into detail. It's the evil that exists in our world today, do I? This is the peer pressure that you face to do sinful things. The ideologies that are just trumpeted to us by this world through every different kind of medium. The systems that this world has put in place to trip us up. John Bunyan wrote in his famous Christian allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, which interestingly enough, he wrote in 1678. And yet how applicable is this for us today? Mr. Worldly Wise Man is not an ancient relic of the past. He is everywhere today, disguising his heresy and error by proclaiming the gospel of contentment and peace achieved by self-satisfaction and works. If he mentions Christ, it is not as the Savior who took our place, but as a good example of an exemplary life. Do we need a good example to rescue us or do we need a Savior? Secondly, we dead in our sins gave ourselves to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan himself. That's who Paul's talking about here. Who operates in control with influence in this world for a time, of course. But for now, he is the puppeteer pulling on the strings behind the scenes. And those who are dead in their sins are controlled and influenced by him. As he operates in the air, Paul says, in the unseen spiritual realms. He is the spirit that exercises control over the sons of disobedience, the unbelievers who are unwilling to turn and trust in God, those who willfully rebel against him, among whom we all once, believed, once lived, Paul says. I hope you notice the change in persons there between verse 1 and verse 3. At the beginning of this passage, Paul is accusative, almost pointing the finger at the Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, he says. Here, among whom we all once lived, he includes himself in this. See, we all at one time in our lives held the title of disobedient. As we were controlled by this world, Satan, its ruler, and lastly, we see passions of our flesh. See, before Christ, dead in our sins, it was our own innate sinful desires that held control over us. Genesis 8.21 says at the beginning of the Bible, what we hold in our hands, we read, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Sinfulness is our factory default setting apart from God. We are slaves to it. We are unable to escape it on our own. The image of God that each and every single one of us was created in is broken because of our sinfulness, as every aspect of who we are is affected by it. Body, mind, heart, soul, will, emotions, all affected and all broken because of sin. bringing with it the title of children of wrath, Paul says, like the rest of mankind. William Klein wrote about wrath in this way. Wrath is God's settled stance against sin. The response demanded when holiness encounters evil. To be children of wrath means that we are subject to God's just 
and deserved punishment against sin as he is a holy God, a just God who cannot allow such things to go unpunished. This was the reality for most of us. This is the reality for some of us currently. Without Jesus, we are desperate, depraved, and destined for destruction. Lost, without hope, like the rest of mankind, with absolutely nothing that we can do to change that. And you see, this, this nonsense idea of, of God helps those who, helps them, who help themselves is completely disproven here. Because what Paul is saying is, God help though, helps those who realize they have no ability to help themselves. There's nothing we can ever do to change the reality of what our sin brings us. On our own, we are under the dominion of our sinful desires, the course of this world and Satan's schemes. And it's this understanding of just how lost we were. But also the reality that there is absolutely nothing we can do to find our own way back. That makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so magnificent. That makes what Jesus has, what Jesus did for us truly unbelievable. Here's the second question. Am I awestruck by what he did for me? In verse 4, we see the greatest two-word phrase ever uttered in the history of mankind. If this isn't already, get it underlined in your Bibles, highlighted in your app, whatever you need to do. Verse 4, we see the essence of the beauty of the gospel wrapped up in two words. But God. I was dead in my sin. Lost without hope. I was an enemy of God but he moved to save me. I was an addict, tearing my life and my family apart, but God. I was an atheist, hating religion, but God. I was a moral and just person, just coasting through life, but God. I grew up in the church, but I somehow believed that I could earn my way to salvation, but God. When I was seven years old, my parents were headed for divorce. My family was headed for destruction, but God. Verse four. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, the salvation many of us claim is a move of God's mercy, grace, and love. These are movements of His nature, not because of anything worthy in us. In the riches of His mercy, God moves to save the most undeserving of people. Any undeserving people in here this morning? Just as God is holy, just, and truth, God is merciful. And God's mercy is the staying of his hand of wrath. It is us not getting what we do deserve. And God acts 
mercifully because that's who he is. That's who your God is. God is rich in mercy. The storehouses of his mercy are never going to run out. See, our government loves to spend money they don't have, don't they? Not the case with God. God is rich in mercy. He's got the cash to back it up. He's good for it. There's no mercy debt on the horizon with God. And he makes that available to us through his son. And just as God was compassionate and merciful to the Israelites in the Old Testament as they broke the covenant, as they were faithless toward him, he remained faithful to them even when they didn't hold up their end of the deal. So also Jesus Christ was merciful and is merciful to those who come to him. He healed the sick. He cleansed the possessed. He forgave the sinners. And in Jesus, we see the fact that God is rich in mercy personified. Listen to what Dane Ortland wrote in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Therefore, when we look at the ministry of Christ in the four Gospels, we are seeing what rich in mercy looks like. How rich in mercy talks. How it conducts itself towards sinners. How it moves towards sufferers. Jesus not only proved that God is rich in mercy by going to the cross and dying in our place to secure that mercy, but Jesus also shows us how God's richness in mercy actually looks and speaks. God has decided to have mercy on you and me by sending his very own son to die in our place to take the wrath that we deserved. Which flows from his loving heart as he has great love with which to love us with as we read here. But not just to deliver us from judgment in mercy, but God also pours out his grace in salvation to give us what we don't deserve. That's what grace is. Where mercy stays God's hand of judgment, grace pours out blessings. Salvation comes to us, sola gratia, we say, by God's grace alone and his pouring out of deliverance on those undeserving. And it comes to us, solus Christus, through Jesus Christ alone, which is what we see as Paul goes on in these verses to summarize our salvation and what God's richness of mercy, love, and grace accomplished for us. He summarizes it in three ways. First, we have been made alive together with Christ. That is the main act of your salvation. You have been made alive. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was not just to simply bring himself back to life and all the glorious nature of that, but by virtue of his resurrection, we, as those who have received Salvation by his death, burial, and resurrection. We are also made alive. We are born again along with him. Once we were dead in our sins. Now we're made alive. And just as the spiritual death that we lived in was real, so the life that we find in Christ is real. And while we live here on this earth in, with the vestiges of death still upon us, as we understand that we will struggle against sin through the entire duration of our earthly lives, that sin has no power over us. We are made, to, we are made alive in Christ, and the full realization of that comes when we are raised together with him in the last days. 
But while we await that, we understand that our salvation is not just physical, but spiritual. And what we enjoy in the here and now as those who have received salvation, as those who are made alive together with Christ, is a spiritual resurrection from the dead. We live in the power of the Holy Spirit that floods into our lives at the moment of conversion to confirm our salvation, to empower us to live for Him from that point and beyond. To be made alive is the main action of salvation, and to be made alive with Christ brings the blessings that Paul goes on to detail as we move into verse 6. By the virtue of our uniting together with Christ in His death and resurrection, God has, see this next, raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Of course, after Jesus died and rose from the dead three days later, he appeared to his disciples and many others and spent some time on this earth. And then Luke 24 details for us that at the end of all of that, he went up, he ascended into heaven to take up his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God, something that Stephen confirms for us as he gazes up and sees a vision of heaven in Acts chapter 7. As Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That is a position of power and authority. Do you know that? Jesus rules and reigns over the powers of this world. And so we, as those made alive with him, are empowered to share in that power and authority that he has and he wields over this world. Over Satan himself and over our sinful flesh. Of course, for us as believers, we know that we live in this tension between the now of where we live and and the not yet of what is to come. And while we eagerly await the second coming of Christ and the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth, we are granted a newness of life that comes from Christ that ought to be a game changer for us. No longer wandering lost in our sinfulness. No longer associating ourselves with the ways of death. You've been made alive, you've been raised, and you've been seated with Christ through what he's accomplished for you. So why would we continue to wallow in the mud of this world? It seems we have no problem choosing heaven over hell, God over Satan. But it seems that for us as Christians, we have a hard time choosing God over this world. Or God over our flesh. So often we seek to have our feet in both worlds instead of living in awe of the salvation that we've received and have that completely change every aspect of who we are. Instead, we crawl our way back to this world with, our passion, with its passions, allowing our flesh to continue to have power over us again and again. Listen, I think we could all agree It's amazing to have things open back up again after so long of being locked down. It's great. It's necessary. But if you're more excited to go to the gym, to have drinks on the patio, or to go to a Jays game than you are to spend time with your small group, to host believers in your home, or to be here for worship and God's word, got to wonder if you're truly awestruck by what Jesus has done for you.
In verse 7, we see the reason as to why God has saved us and poured out His mercy, love, and grace. It is, take a look, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's to show His glory. That His glory may be on full display in the revealing of the grace and kindness that He has shown to us. That it would completely transform who we are so that we would give Him glory in what we do. And as we show that kind of grace and mercy and kindness to others in this world, God would get the glory as it changes us and transforms us, that we would live in awe of all that God has done for us. Because, verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We've said already salvation comes through Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and as Paul brings up here, it comes through faith alone. Now notice, really quickly, not because of our faith. We're not saved because of our faith. There's nothing that we could do. There's no accomplishment that we could achieve that will change our standing before God. That's not what he's saying here at all. Salvation is a gift. And to receive that gift, one must acknowledge who Jesus is, admit our sinfulness and need of a Savior, understand what he has done for us, and accept it, which, listen, you can do right now haven't done so already. These words should never become commonplace for us. The way that Paul describes how we receive salvation should be unbelievable. It is a move of God's mercy and love through the power of his grace and kindness, it is a gift that we receive. I hope you stand in awe of that. I hope just hearing it over these last few minutes has made your heart burst. The gravity of how salvation comes to us should be something that we just grow in awe in of as we grow in our knowledge of it and as we work out our salvation with God. Where's the evidence that I'm walking with Christ? Here's the final question. Am I active in working for him? If you notice, there's a decidedly past, present, and future nature to how Paul talks in this passage and to our salvation. We know that we were dead in our sins past. We are saved by God's mercy, love, and grace present. We live in that salvation every day. And then we get to verse 10. We see the future element. Take a look. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As those who are new creations, born again, made new through the work that God has accomplished through Jesus in us, we are called to be living and active in doing the work that he has set out for us to do. I love this quote from an author by the name of Klein Snodgrass. It says, he says, salvation is not from works, but it is surely for works. You catch that? Let me read it again. Salvation is not from works, but it is surely for works. 
And the result of the salvation that we have is that we now walk in the works that God has established for us. This is the narrow path that we are called to walk on. This is the way that we are called to live. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Because salvation is more than just a forgiveness of sins. Grace and mercy does not allow you to just go and chart your own course after you receive forgiveness. No, our sovereign God charted the course for believers in eternity past. He has laid out the way that we ought to walk. And instead of participating in this world or our flesh, we participate in the works of Christ as his workmanship. And thanks be to God that he has not only set the course, but he has made it possible that we should be able to walk in his ways through the spirit at work in us. And our role is to not quench that spirit by giving in to temptation, by seeking to live in the world, but instead giving in wholeheartedly to him and what he has for us to do. After all, James made it clear for us in his letter, James 2.17, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Are your works lining up with the salvation that you claim to have? Are the things that you are doing, are the passions and pursuits of your life lining up with the work that Christ has done for you? Do you believe that the spirit of Jesus Christ alive in you is more powerful than the spirit of this world or the spirit of your flesh and can trump all of that, can defeat all of that, can overcome all of that in your life? Are you being refreshed and made new by the fruits of the Spirit? Are your pursuits and priorities aligned with that of Jesus himself? Are you showing love to those whom you are called to love, which includes your enemies, by the way? Are you eradicating the sinful and shameful ways in which you once walked, which God has freed you from? Interestingly enough, the, religion, the religions of the time that Paul wrote to the Ephesians had a, had a decidedly reciprocal nature to them. People served the small g false gods that they believed, and so they thought that if I gave this sacrifice, if I did this thing prescribed to me by my religion, then my God would pour out blessings on me. If I gave this sacrifice, then my soil would be fertile, my crops would grow, my family would expand. And is it not interesting that the prevailing religion of today, the religion of self, is very similar? How is what I'm doing going to benefit me? How is this going to advance my platform? How is this going to get me more followers? How is this going to get me more influence? What can I do to people so that I can one day take that favor back from them? See, the message of the gospel is that an all-powerful, holy, righteous, sovereign God gave it all up for you while you were still his enemy. There's nothing that you can do for him, so stop living like it. And the result of our salvation is that we would emulate that same sort of self-sacrifice, giving, loving, serving, doing that which we are called to 
walking in the ways that God has prescribed for us, expecting nothing in return. As I was preparing for this message, I was sent a quote from Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish theologian that some of you may be familiar with. He said this a few years ago at a conference. We know the scriptures so little. And if we're really honest, we love the Lord Jesus so little as well that if someone put us in a room with no distractions and said, I just want you to sit there and think about the Lord Jesus for five minutes, many evangelical Christians in the Western world would find that an enormous trial because we don't know five minutes worth of the Lord Jesus. Mary, if you're anything like me, as soon as you heard that, your back got up a little bit. Of course, of course I know five minutes worth of Jesus. That's ridiculous. As I reflected on it a little bit more, as I considered it, I realized, considering that all that takes up in my mind, all that, that takes up space in my mind and in my conversations in any given week, let alone any given day, let alone any given hour, I don't pay my relationship with Jesus the mind that I ought to. And can I be so bold to say that this is a problem that most, if not all of us, share? What evidence does your life show of your walk with Jesus? When was the last time you truly considered the depths of your desperation before him, just how lost you were? When was the last time that you wept in awe of all that Jesus did for you? Or have you sat here this morning bored at just another message on the gospel that you've heard a million times before? Lord, let this never become commonplace for us. Let it translate into lives that look like Christ's and actively walk in the ways that he has called us to. Amen? Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we bow before you in this moment, recognizing that we are a people so fickle, such a lack of devotion, tossed to and fro by the waves so often, a people who have sought to hold onto this world and onto you, a people who have sought to dictate to you how we want to live our lives. Forgive us, Lord. Father, I pray by your spirit you be convicting each of us of a lack of passion and commitment to walking with you. God, we know that we are weak and we are frail. Thank you that you are a God who is long-suffering with us, patient. A God who grants us your spirit to work in us, to bring us to a knowledge of who you are and to enable us to do the things you call us to. Thank you, God, that you, even when we were your enemies, made it possible to be saved. So God, allow us to walk in that, I pray. Convict us of the sins that we're aware of, that we're holding on to. Convict us of that, those which we may not be aware of. Give us a greater passion for your word, for the gospel. Let it not just be something that unbelievers need to hear, but God, will we be refreshed 
daily by the truth that we are saved by grace through faith. That you are God rich in mercy with great love. We give all the glory to all, for all of these things to you, Father, and ask that you would continue this work, not just now, but in the days and weeks to come. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.